0: Isn't it good to be back here for Palm Sunday? Um, I was thinking about this um, this week. It's it's been four years since we've been here together, all of us on a Palm Sunday. Um, Two years with COVID, the year before that, if you remember, we had a storm go through the night before. Uh, here in Austin the night before Palm Sunday. And we arrived on campus for our first service and there was no power here, but not only was there no power, there was a live electrical wire down in the parking lot. So we had to, at the last minute, cancel services. Jill just reminded me the year before that, five years ago, uh, well, four years, uh, uh, the year before that in 2018, it was right the couple of days after my father had passed away. So I wasn't here. It's been five years since I've been to the pulpit on a Palm Sunday. It, it was so interesting when I think back on that journey because four years ago when we had to uh, do the first of the pivoting that our church has had to do a lot of, along with all of us, um, when there was electrical wire down in the uh, grounds and we had to cancel worship, we had our first online service. And it was like this. But our wonderful director of communications at the time, Stephanie Schultz, holding her cell phone up. Uh, <laughs> and it was on Facebook Live, and we hoped it worked. And I preached a little homily, and we had some stripped down music, and it was great. And what I remember is afterwards, someone saying to me, uh, this is another pastor, I said, you know what, man, this is actually good for you. Uh, Because everybody has something weird happen in Holy Week during their tenure at a church. And every Palm Sunday after this is just going to be easy. Like you (laughs) had your weird thing. But a global pandemic changes that. Think about where we were as a world four years ago. The last time we were able to gather on this campus for Palm Sunday. Think about how our world has changed in so many different ways since then. And think about how this church has changed. We now are a hybrid worshiping of online and on campus. And some of the people worshiping with us right now are not in Austin and are not in Texas. And they are growing with us in faith. It's amazing as we sit here that we can be grateful we're back. But we're not back just the way it was before. God has been good and has changed us and is changing us. And that is worth giving thanks for. God has been good to us on this journey, as hard as it has been. And it is good that we are here together today, all of us, in worship. And so with grateful hearts, let's turn to our Palm Sunday text for this day from Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. After he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. And as he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here today, we would hear your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things that we need to be aware of as we enter into Palm Sunday, and really we need to be aware of this as we enter into Holy Week, is that there is a growing tension that you and I are a part of, that we're living in, that is a part of Palm Sunday. And we want to, from the beginning, name that tension. Now that tension doesn't start today. That tension's been growing. The tension is the tension between Jesus as his movement is becoming more popular as he is being uh, seen as a a miracle worker, and a healer, and a teacher. Um, And the tension that's growing on the other end is that as his popularity is growing, the religious authorities and the political authorities of his day uh, are getting more and more serious about stopping him. We saw this last week in our our text, when Jesus, maybe in the most dramatic miracle that he does before uh, the, the events of Holy Week, when he raises Lazarus from the dead. And it says that the crowd just erupts in joy. And when the religious people, though, see the crowd and see how they're starting to respond, we read last week that that was the moment that they said, we can no longer just debate him and argue with him. We need to kill him. To where Caiaphas says, it's better for one man to suffer than for the entire nation to suffer. And so this this tension that's building, as Jesus then has to go into hiding is on full show. This is probably the summit, this is probably the apex of this tension and it starts to bubble over and boil over and it's the tension that then explodes in the events of Holy Week that takes us on the journey that we are called to go and take in the days ahead. Now, what is the tension that we see here today to understand the tension in Palm Sunday? It's very, very important. We understand the symbols that are taking place here because there are a lot of symbols here that have meaning that you and I need to be aware of today to understand this tension. Well, first thing we need to understand is what are the symbols that are alive and what the, the crowd is doing, what the people are doing. And there's a lot here. The first thing we see is that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a colt or a donkey and rides over from the Mount of Olives, which is very specific. And the Old Testament prophets like Zechariah, they say that when the Messiah comes, that he will ride on the back of a donkey or a colt and ride over the Mount of Olives and enter into the city in that way. And so when the people see that, they understand the symbolism from the Old Testament of what is taking place we got to understand that then they they lay their cloaks and their coats on the ground before him, which may not make much sense to us, but at the time was hugely significant. This is something in many parts of the ancient world that folks did for royalty or for people who had power. Whenever the Roman Emperor or Caesar from a military campaign would enter back into the Rome, people would lay their coats on the ground as Caesar's horse passed over it. And so when they lay their cloaks on the ground, this is a sign of the people saying, you are the king, you are our king, and we want you to know that you have that power and that presence. We see in the waving of palm branches, which some of us did uh, today <laughs> as we were coming in. I'm not just saying some of us did. Uh, as we came in is that these palm branches are not just random things people picked up. They are signs of God's, uh, uh, of, the, of the nation of Israel. They are symbols of uh, Israel and national unity. The song that they are singing, the chant, the, 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 the words they're singing, Hosanna, blessed is the one that comes in the la- name of the Lord. This isn't just kind of words that they're quoting. This is a quote from Psalm 118. Well, what is Psalm 118? Psalm 118 is a psalm that was sung for the national identity of God's nation. It was a psalm that was often sung when there was a military victory and Israel was celebrating. It has symbolism that this is the psalm that they're quoting. And finally, Jesus is coming when? On the Passover. And it's in the Passover, the, the most holy celebration uh, of the Jewish year when, when the population of Jerusalem would have been swelling with religious pilgrims that would have come in. And what is Passover. Passover is when God delivered his people from the hands of Pharaoh, from slavery. God sent a deliverer, Moses. And so when they now celebrate God sending a deliverer once again, they have an idea of what that means. That God has sent the Messiah, sent Jesus, to deliver them in power and in might from a foreign occupier once again. But this time it's not Pharaoh. Now it's Rome and the Caesar. Everything that the people are doing here has meaning and purpose. And what they are saying in their actions and in their words are, God has sent you to us to deliver us by might, by power. And yet there's some other symbols that are present here, aren't there? Symbols that the people might have missed or symbols that they saw them might have seemed confusing because it doesn't line up with a God of military might and power who's about to show off that power to a government. We see that when Jesus rides in, he doesn't ride what people would have associated with an animal that was for a conquering military hero. When Caesar rode in, there was a mighty war horse. But Jesus goes in on a colt. Or in some gospels, it's a donkey. But these are uh, animals that show humility. And show a sign of peace. And then right after the verses we read, Jesus, when he enters into Jerusalem, doesn't go where the people would have wanted him to go, who are shouting, you've come to deliver us from Caesar. They would have wanted him to go straight to Pontius Pilate and to show the power of God, just like Moses had done to Pharaoh, and to drive out the Romans. They were ready for a revolt. But Jesus goes to the temple... And starts throwing out the money changers and the tax collectors so that the most poor, who were denied access to God because they couldn't pay, were then welcomed into the temple knowing that they had, along with everyone else, full access to God. And these are the sparks that we start to see in Holy Week of how the crowd starts to change and move from Hosanna to crucify Him. Because what Palm Sunday confronts us with and confronted the crowd with at the time is that the Messiah that they get is not necessarily the Messiah that they want or expect. The Messiah that they get is not necessarily the Messiah that they were hoping for in every way. And when God doesn't do what they believe should be done, they turn. Now, I think we need to be generous to the people at the time. It's not that they were just immature. It's not that they just kind of spoiled and wanted to get their own way. To live under Roman occupation was to live under one of the most brutal systems of terror that has ever governed the world in human history. They were exposed to unbelievable hardship and fear. And they were raising their children in that. And they were raising their grandchildren in that. And they were living in terror and in fear every day. Rome ruled by absolute force. It did, they were not interested in if they were affirmed by the people. And everyone knew that. You have to imagine for a second what that would be like. You will have to imagine that if you in your mind right now, if I asked you what's one thing you would ask God for, And I'm not saying, like, I want to win the lottery and have five vacations. We we kind of know, even if we want that, that we shouldn't ask God for that because that's too self-centered. And so it's like what we do is, if I asked you to say, like, what's the most altruistic prayer? Like, if you could just look at the world or look at your life and go, God, obviously you would change this. This is a place of pain that makes no sense. This is a circumstance that makes no sense. And if you were able to name that to God in the flesh, and you realize that God was standing in the flesh in front of you, and you said, well, here's the thing. Obviously, this is the thing that a loving God would do. And for God to look at you and say, yeah, I'm here, but I'm not here for that. And if you stop and think about it, that can poke at a difficult and hurtful and painful place in each of us, can it? Because what all of us have in life are questions, our struggles, our doubts. God, if you're so good, why is the world like this? God, if you care about me, why is this happening to my family? God, where are you in the midst of what is going on here? You see, Palm Sunday gives us a choice. On the one hand, it gives us a choice to just sort of kind of sing our songs and wave our palms and enjoy the tradition. And we're back, you know, able to worship online on campus together. And it's this whole new thing and it's great. and, and, And it's just wonderful to be back. And that's one option. And parts of that are true. But Palm Sunday, I believe, is one of the most difficult Sundays if we choose to wrestle with it. Because it's where the people and where you and I are confronted with sometimes the God we want isn't the God we have. And I want to invite us, rather than going, no, 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 it's Palm Sunday, let's stay positive, let's like, keep on... I want us to actually go to those places of doubt or struggle right now in our minds, and I want you to sit there. What are the places for you that if you could ask God a question, you could go, explain this one to me. Why is this happening? Why is, is this taking place in the world? And I want you to go to those places right now, which we often avoid, especially in church... And I want you to see it in your head and in your heart. Because if we go there, if you go there right now, Palm Sunday has something very hopeful to offer. Which is that even though the Messiah the people want isn't the Messiah that they get, what we need to see with our eyes is it's not that God's not working. It's not that God's not there. It's not that God's not doing anything. God in cleansing the temple, God in coming into Jerusalem is saying that the Messiah that he is, as one pastor put it that I heard once, said that God's not there to do what the people want him to do. The people want God to alleviate the symptoms of the disease that they are dealing with, and that is Rome. But Rome is not the disease. The human condition is the disease. If you could just throw Rome out, as all of human history shows us, you're gonna have another leader come in who might be better in some ways and will just disappoint us in other ways. The answer is not just switching out the human systems. That's dealing with the symptoms. What Jesus is doing is not dealing with the symptoms. Jesus is seeking to cure the disease. And the disease at its core is the separation between the creator and the creation. You see, as altruistic as it is, even here, even wanting to live outside of Rome, original sin is Adam and Eve saying, uh, we want to be like God. And you see how that lives on and people going, well, obviously a loving God would do this. Where we tell God how God should work. Jesus is seeking to overturn that and to restore the intimacy where individuals and families and, 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 and nations and everyone else can turn to God and know that God accepts them in. And can lead and transform us all in new ways that everyone has access to their creator. Jesus isn't there to overturn the symptoms, he's over to overturn the disease. And so I want you, as we sit in this place of being aware of our own struggles this Palm Sunday, I want you to sit there, and as we sit there, if you can do that for a second, and if you can have the kind of faith to say, okay, God's working here, it's not what the people want, but how can I respond differently than the crowd? How do I do that? How do I have the maturity of faith to try to see what God's doing even when it's confusing? I want to invite us to do this this week by asking a question. It's a question that just starts with two words What if? What if? Now, I, was, I, I found out about this question uh, just recently in a book that I read by an author named Donald Miller. Uh, Donald Miller re- recently released a book called Hero on a Mission, um, and, and in this book, um, Donald Miller, if you know this author, I, I like him, but this is the same shtick that he has had for several years, and it's been very successful for him, um, and, and in this book, he talks about how we think of our life like a story. That's kind of what he talks about. And he says that in every story that an author writes, there's always at least four characters that have to be present. There's the hero, there's the villain, there's the victim, and there's the guide. He says every story, every movie you can think of has all four of them in that. And what does it mean in the story that God's writing in our life to seek to be the hero, which is not the Superman or Superwoman that has the answers, but that a hero is someone that's willing to take on a challenge and go on a journey, and they are transformed in the process. Anyway, as Donald Miller's writing about this, he says that when writers, because he's talking about the idea of story, he says when writers, and I've never written a book, if you've written a book, you can tell me if this is right or wrong, Um, but they said that that writers, when they have writer's block, uh, sometimes get stuck in writing, and that when a writer gets stuck in writing, a technique you can be taught is to say, is to ask what if questions. So you look at your character in a moment, you're stuck, and then you're like, well, what if they did this? What would happen then and what would take place and do I like that or do I not or what if they did that he said that you just ask lots and lots of what if questions and you imagine these different scenarios and then you can sort of get unstuck by asking what if questions and seeing where the story or the characters might go and I wonder what it might look like if we asked some what if questions of God in those places where we stuck for example Imagine how the story would be different if when Jesus goes to the temple, rather than going to Pilate, if the crowd had asked, what if? What if God's wanting to show us something more important? What if? God is actually doing exactly what we need the Messiah to do. What if we need to be understanding and looking and still sitting in what's God trying to teach us here? Imagine how the story might have been different, or even more so, imagine if the Pharisees, when Jesus begins his ministry rather than seeking to kill him, sat in a what-if place. What if this is the Messiah? What if despite the fact of what we didn't expect about this and it threatens our systems and our rules and our establishment and our kind of position and power, what if God actually has sent this one and we paid attention and sought to learn? Instead, imagine how this story would be different. I always like to have a a sermon illustration, kind of a, a way when you introduce a concept that it can come alive, telling a story in one way or another. And I thought of some stories this week Uh, to illustrate what a what-if kind of faith in those places of doubt, what it means to sit with open hands in what-if rather than going, no, that's not what God should do. But rather than telling you a story of my life or something I've read about recently, I actually want to look at the text here. For some people on Palm Sunday we rarely pay attention to that I think exhibit what a what-if faith looks like. For example, long before the waving palm branches and uh, everything else, we see that Jesus is with his disciples. Now remember, he's in hiding, right? He's in hiding because a threat is there. And he looks at the disciples and he says to them, "Um, who wants to go to the village there and borrow a (laughs) colt? And it's not clear that you have money. I mean, this is Texas, guys. It's not long ago that borrowing a colt or a horse was like one of the biggest crimes you could, <laughs> uh, you could commit. If I were the disciples and I was sitting there at that moment, I think it would be a moment that every teacher or you know, every pastor has had when you ask for a volunteer and where everyone like, no one's making eye contact with you, right? I think like no one's probably making, who wants to go into the village without money and borrow a colt? Everyone's like staring at the ground or like looking at the birds or maybe whispering under the vest. It's just, like, James hasn't done anything in a while. <laughs> Send James to go do that one. That has James written all over it, right? And yet despite that, there are two who I think exhibit a what if. What if in this strange request, God actually is going to do something miraculous, wondrous, unexpected that might happen. And they venture out with that sort of curiosity and what if attitude. And the story changes because of them. Or even take more than that, take the owners of the cult. Unnamed in the passage, we skip right over this part. I want you to imagine you walk outside your house tomorrow and someone's hot wiring your car that you don't know. (laughs) And you say, what are they doing? And they're like, it's for God. (laughs) Seriously, what is your reply to that going to be? And yet there's something in this owner of the cult, potentially their most valuable possession that I think exhibits a what-if quality in this doubt in this most unexpected of way. And there's something in this generosity that changes the trajectory of the whole, of the entire story. The owner of this cult becomes a hero. In the passage of what's taking place and 2,000 years later in another part of the world we're still talking about this individual and how they became a part of a story bigger than themselves even though it's not what they expected God to do what would it mean if you and I had the maturity of faith that in the parts of our life that are not exactly how we think they should go and the parts of our world that are not exactly how we think we should go and all of us have very real very painful examples of this, if we sat in a posture today and didn't avoid them, didn't uh, not talk about it, didn't just keep everything happy on Palm Sunday, but if we actually sat in those gaps of pain and believed that God was not looking away or ignoring us, just as he's not looking away or ignoring the pain of the people here, but that God is making all things new. And that's going to require God to do some things that aren't what we would order up. What would it mean this week for you to see and to name those places and to say, what if you're doing the most magnificent thing that I could imagine? What if you want to teach me something here? What if you want to show me something here? What if you want me to take an unexpected turn and to become, what if this is the most important moment? Help me to see it. Help me to be a part of it. Help me to enter into it. Rather than turn. Because God is at work in your story. Every one of you. And will not let you go. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that as your people we would have this curiosity of faith even in the places of hurt. Imagine if the people in this story had been able to ask what if this is truly the work of the Messiah. And help us to imagine how we might posture ourselves to live with a what if faith in the questions that we face today. Meet us and help us to see with your eyes that you are making all things new. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.